Hey there, it's Jim Stengel, host of the CMO Podcast. We're all marketers here, so let's be real for a sec. We all know that your website shouldn't be a static asset. It should be a dynamic part of your strategy to build your brand and drive conversions. That's Marketing 101. But 54% of marketing leaders say web updates take too long. That's over half of you listening right now. And that's where Webflow comes in. Their visual-first platform allows you to build, launch, and optimize web pages fast. That means you can set ambitious marketing goals and your site can rise to that challenge. Learn why teams like Dropbox, IDEO, and Orange Theory all trust Webflow to achieve their most ambitious goals today at webflow.com. What's the first brand as a young girl growing up in Chicago that made an impact on you? What comes to mind is an unexpected answer. <laughs> and I'm going to say Wet n Wild. Do you remember the brand Wet n Wild? Yeah, yeah. They made one dollar eyeliners and lipsticks. So as a young girl, it gave me access to like all of these beauty products without having a lot of money. Um, I wouldn't say necessarily like high quality beauty products, but I just Wet n Wild. That's it. All began there. <laughs> that's the first thing that came to mind. Hi, I'm Jim Stengel, and I help major brands find their purpose and activate it, and the profits follow. For seven years, I was the global marketing officer for Procter & Gamble, where I oversaw the marketing of hundreds of brands. You may not know it, but the CMOs, the chief marketing officers of all of your favorite brands, are trying to connect you with your favorite products and services through purpose. And on this show, I delve into how they do it. My guest today in the CMO podcast is A.C. Eggleston-Bracey, the EVP and Chief Operating Officer for the Unilever North American Beauty and Personal Care business. Unilever is roughly a $60 billion company, one of the top advertisers in the world, with a stated purpose to work with people to make sustainable living commonplace. Top brands include Dove, Axe Links, Lifebuoy, Omo, Lipton, Hellman's, Noor, and about 390 other ones. A.C. is a Chicago native, lives now in New York City. Her personal mantra is passion power, and her anthem is Run the World by Beyonce. This is my conversation with my friend, A.C. eggleston Bracy. Welcome, A.C., to the CMO Podcast. It is so good to see you again. It has been too long. Agree. It's super nice to be here with you, Jim. And I see your face on Zoom as we record this on a Friday late afternoon, early evening after a long week. These are all long weeks. Can you share with our listeners, do you have a weekend ritual to chill, to relax, to renew, or not? That's a great question. Um, My team always says, how was your weekend? And I always answer every weekend's a good weekend. Mm -hmm. So I love the weekend. And the first part of the weekend is generally they're not scheduled or structured meetings. Although I do use the weekends to take meetings in other areas outside of work that are important to me, or sometimes to connect with uh, people without a schedule per se. But what I generally try to do is make Saturday a work-free day. And so um, usually Friday nights as a family, We'll have family dinner, we'll do family movie, and we might stay up late together as a family. So I like to sleep in and catch up on sleep because, of course, during the week we don't get as much sleep as we like. 
And then I usually um, start my day exercising. So I go to the gym or I'll run or I'll take a walk. And then because I do intermittent fasting, I'm usually famished by then. So at that point, it's usually one or two. Um, and I grab something to eat and then usually run errands um, or connect with a friend, take a walk. These days I've been walking Central Park. So I'll say, let's meet up because it's safe and it's outdoors. Um, and then I might have other meetings, like other organizations that I'm in. Sometimes, usually after three or four, those are times I'll use too, like planning events. I'm uh, planning an event now where uh, this upcoming year is the New York mayoral election. So we're doing a little bit of meet the candidate. So I have several other pro- projects, um, things that I work on. And then it's Saturday night. You know, um, I might, you know, if I have a big work project, I might take some time to do some things or connect with people, but generally not on Saturday. Um, so I love my weekends. And then I move to Sunday. Uh, Sunday, um, I do use Sundays more as a work catch-up day, get ready for the week. Yeah. But I still go through the same bit of uh, exercise in the morning, uh, spending some time with the family. But I tend to have more calls or things that I have to do. And then just get ready for the week. But I just love the flexibility of the weekend. I love it. We have a lot to talk about. Uh, we could really do a whole series on you. Uh, but I want to start back in Chicago. And I've seen you refer to your math teacher, dad, and your activist mother mm-hmm. in some other. Could you speak about their impact on you? Yeah, you asking the question makes me smile because it brings me memories, especially because of COVID. I haven't seen my parents in more than a year <laughs> at this point. Yeah. I like being in New York and I last visited, I want to say it was uh, January or February of 2020. So it makes me smile. Um, my father um, was called Coach Egg. Our, uh, my maiden name is Eggleston. So Mr. Eggleston, he's a math teacher and he was the coach of the basketball team. And he uh, taught at, I would say, in, uh, an underinvested in and underserved school. And for, and he, uh, was like a father for many of his students. And I grew up with them at home because they were always over Coach Egg. And my dad, he, you know, was a committed math teacher and a coach and just a wonderful human being. I mean, just a family person. My dad growing up, he was the one who would come to my, um, um, to my gymnastics matches or my cheerleading competitions. That was my dad, just like a family man. So that's my dad. And I picked up my love of math from him as a math teacher. Uh, my mother, um, it's a firecracker, <laughs> uh, young, feisty. She went, uh, to law school, um, after she had had two kids and decided she wanted to be a lawyer. Like, you know, she just decided in the world what she wanted to do and she'd do that. And she was a, you know, both of my parents are really activists, always, uh, champions for the community. My father, um, led what he always calls, I believe it's called Operation 500 at University of Illinois in Champaign-Urbana, which was bringing in uh, 500 students of color after the death of Martin Luther King Jr. And so my parents um, were activists, activists for the underserved and for um, African-Americans in particular. 
And so my name, um, A.C. Johari, comes from that. Johari means jewel in Swahili. A.C. means little girl born on Sunday. They always wanted their children to know that they come from heritage and meaning, that the origin didn't start from slavery, that there was something more. So um, my parents both um, have left an incredible impression on me. Like, uh, I'm a lot like my mother. Um, and, you know, um, you know, if I have a plan, I go for it. And then my father, you know, I just, I love people in the way my dad, you know, does. And I like extended family. So um, you know, those are my parents. You come by purpose very naturally and organically, AC. T- tell me what kind of coach was your dad? Was he a tough coach, a coach of the players? Was he, you know, what, what was his style? Oh, definitely not tough. No? My dad, no. <laughs> such a, I mean, he just, my dad likes to have a good time. And so he enjoyed his students. Mm-hmm. You know, over the years, he learned to cook. And so he'd make gumbo and invite the kids over. And he just believed in the kids. And so he was that kind of coach. He was like a nurturing coach, I would yeah. say, believed in the kids. But he also wouldn't ex- accept mediocrity. <laughs> you know, he always knew that his kids could do more. And it's interesting to talk about my dad. What I did mention is my father um, in 2018 um, suffered from a stroke, but an unexpected stroke that's more like an aneurysm. So um, he got his basilar artery disrupted or dissected. And so now he can't speak. He can't move. Mm. He has something called locked-in syndrome, which is the, his condition is something that happens to young people. Um, when this happened. So it was like a sudden thing that happened to our family. And it's so interesting because my father, he's like the life of the party, he travels everywhere, his love of music, and my dad is now confined. Um, um, it's why I mention this about my father. Uh, the prognosis for him was extremely bleak. And any kind of improvement from being locked in, which means all you can do is blink your eyes. That's how you speak. Um, is is not usual, especially someone of my father's age. And now he's locked in, but probably partially locked in. He can nod his head. He can move his hand. He can kick his foot. My mother was just telling me this weekend he moved his leg. He's been incredibly resilient during COVID. And, you know, he just has a wonderful spirit. And his it's his humility that has helped him through his condition. You know, that he accepts helps, help from people, yeah. and that's how he coaches. That's a, the way he's lived life. So I just continue to just admire and be inspired by my dad. You know, imagine being out in the world, traveling and living, and now your life is confined and for him to still live. So um, and, and enjoying it in his own way, right? Yeah, his yeah. family, his grandchildren, yeah. and, and still fighting. Right. He continues to make progress. Right. Mm. You know, I thought, AC, about our our discussion today, we know each other. And for our listeners, I remember, AC, when we were both much younger, you were way younger. And I remember you from talent reviews at P&G. We used to sit in the big rooms and I was more senior than you and talk about the up and comers and and who would be the future of the company and who were the new leaders. and you rose to the top in that discussion and became, I think, our youngest general manager ever. And so I go back a long way when you were a bright star, rising star at P&G. So it, 
It is so good to connect with you again. But I thought, what what should we talk about? And there, you know, we're, we're talking about your parents and inspiration. We could talk about purpose. We could talk about marketing. We could talk about brand building. We could talk about leadership. But I thought as I have looked at your journey and reflected on your journey, that we should talk about transitions, both professional and personal transitions, because you've had some whoppers. You know, you went to Dartmouth and you thought you were going to be an engineer and you go to a CPG company in marketing in Cincinnati, Ohio. So what did your parents say about that? But anyway, but that was a big transition, I expect. You thrived at P&G for 25 years, about a third of that in Geneva. And I imagine you were one of the only senior black female leaders in the Geneva community. I lived in Geneva. It was not the most diverse place we've been and actually not the most welcoming place we've been. Then you went to Cody when P&G sold the business. That's a transition. You took a sabbatical. And then you landed at Unilever in New York City in a really senior level. So I just think it would be really helpful for our listeners, especially our young listeners, and we have a lot of them, to talk about which of those was most challenging, personally and professionally. Hmm. Oh, wow, what an interesting question. Um, one, you've done so much homework, Jim. I'm just so well, like, uh, I enjoy impressed it. by that. It's so, oh, it's so, so interesting. And I don't know if anyone's ever asked me that question before, but I think it's a really rich one. And I think it speaks to my, my life philosophy. I mean, I really, really, truly embrace this idea of you have one life to live, so you should live it to the fullest and claim it. You just don't know what's in store, so you just take it on. You know, and I often say, as I reflect on my journey, and I'll come back to transitions, it's been one first of kind of like finding my voice, and then in finding it, like claiming it, and then, you know, choosing to use my voice for good, for impact. And the transitions have all been a part of that kind of discovery. They've all been discovery, a little bit of choosing and claiming and what can you learn from these transitions? And I talked to you about my dad. I mean, that was like, ah, oh. and then it's like embracing it, you know, and uh, that's what the transitions have been like for me. I think the most disruptive one was probably early, which was astutely going to Dartmouth. You know, I grew up in the city of Chicago. Uh, I grew up in Hyde Park. It was, I thought it was diverse. It was my experience was probably predominantly black, probably because it was 50 to 60%. But I grew up in the neighborhood of University of Chicago, so it was academic, but I went to the public high school, but it was a really uh, accredited public school, Kenwood Academy. There are two mm -hmm. public schools, Whitney Young, where Michelle Obama went, and Kenwood Academy, those two there. But I, you know, I felt really comfortable in my own skin. I was comfortable as the majority, but not as the overwhelming majority. So I was, you know, comfortable in diverse environments. And then I chose to go to Dartmouth. You know, what interested me in Dartmouth was a bit that it was different. You know, um, while I was a math geek, 
Um, I thought I wanted to do engineering. I had a sense that I liked people and I wanted a liberal arts uh, education. So I ultimately graduated with a Bachelor of Arts in Engineering Sciences. So that was a little different. And then the environment, you know, I'd never been to New England, <laughs> aside from college searches. So I saw beautiful green trees and mountains and thought it was amazing. So it attracted me. And I was, so I go to Dartmouth. When I got there, it was a rude awakening, <laughs> you know, you know. There weren't very many black students. People would touch my hair and ask me questions. And, you know, it was kind of like I wasn't used to being the minority or the person that was different. And so it was just different. It was, you know, that was the most disruptive transition that I feel like I had at the time. And, um, you know, reflecting on this, I hadn't done that in a while. But what did I do? I embraced that and got active. You know, I joined the Black Student Union. I started this academic peer advisory council. I joined a sorority, like did all these things and uh, worked on campus. And, you know, so I, you know, made it work for me. Um, met a lot of dear friends that I still have to this day. Um, so that's, that's one, that's the first one that um, comes to bear. What role did that have in as you said, finding your voice and then claiming it. What about that experience helped you with that? It started the activism because before that, while my parents were activists and I had, I just, that wasn't, you know, when I was in high school, uh, I was a pom-pom girl. <laughs> I was on the math team. <laughs> you know, yeah. I did gymnastics. Yeah. I wasn't doing, you know, I was in the church choir. I, I wasn't doing activism. I think, I'm trying to think, when I was in junior high, I think I was a president of my student union, but it wasn't activist. It was like, it was, a com it was different. Yeah. And so yeah. when I got to Dartmouth, I had more of a sense of what it meant to be underserved, what it meant to be not the majority, to understand challenges. And, and it got me more active, more culturally aware. I was in a dance troupe called Ujima, which was about cultural expression. So it made me, you know, that started the activism. Yeah. So that was the most jarring transition. And you went to P&G from there. I mean, why? What, what happened? <laughs> you, were, you did an internship in Motorola Solutions, which I was on the board of, by the way, you know, years ago. So you were clearly on an engineering track, and then you fall into marketing. I mean, that had to be... Abrupt. Cincinnati is not Dartmouth. It's not Chicago. Something in between. Uh, tell us about that. So I never knew what I wanted to be, but I knew I wanted to do something stretching. And so I had this vision that I wanted to be a double doctor and that I would pursue an MD, PhD in biomedical engineering so I could be a double doctor. And why? I didn't know. I was naive. I thought I loved math. What's a practical way of using math? Engineering. I liked people. I want to help people. So I should be a doctor. And so I looked up and did a bunch of research. I remember at the time hearing there weren't many women, certainly not black women, and that that would give me something to stretch for. 
but I had no idea what it was. I kind of made it up, an MD, PhD in biomedical engineering. At the time, I wouldn't admit that I made it up. And so I went to Dartmouth. I remember Professor Collier, which was the, um, the did biomedical engineering and was at the medical school. So I took it on seriously. And what I learned is I liked math and I liked problem solving in terms of systems. I liked the intellectual frameworks of problem solving. I did not like getting my hands dirty. I did not like lab. And I did all of that. I had an internship, yes, at Motorola, at Argonne National Labs. I worked in labs at Dartmouth and I just didn't enjoy it, but I enjoyed systems engineering. I enjoyed computer programming. I liked all the brain work, but I didn't like the physical work. And so I thought, what do I do now? What do I do now? And I realized this because I learned this over time. And I was really busy on campus. I talked to you about the different organizations I was a part of. And engineering is a pretty rigorous curriculum. So I was always busy. And I happened to go into my apartment and the telephone rang. And at that time, we had answering machines. And instinctively, I picked up the phone. And I shouldn't have because I was running to another event. And there was a person who called me. And she said, hi, AC. We'd like you to join our information session and come to da 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 I had to get her off the phone. So I said, yes, I'll be there. And I'm someone I always try to do what I say I'll do. Mm-hmm. And it happened to be an informational session on brand management being recruited by P&G. And I showed up to the session late because I wasn't interested, but only to check the box so I could satisfy that I was doing what I was doing, satisfy that I was doing what I said I would do. And I showed up to the session and they said, problem solving, working with teams, working with people, curious about people. So I also studied anthropology and sociology when I was at Dartmouth because I always liked people. And I thought, this is so weird. That's all the stuff I like to do. (laughs) And so that's how I learned about this area called brand management and even learned. I didn't know anything about Procter & Gamble. And I always had this weird thing that I liked to go to the grocery store because I was curious about the brands and products. It was just weird. People thought it was weird. And so um, I thought, oh, that sounds interesting, but no way I'll move to Cincinnati, Ohio. So let me find somewhere that I can do this kind of work, but not in Cincinnati, Ohio. And so that's how I ended up at P&G. I ended up going through corporate recruiting. I looked at consulting, banking, and then brand management. I researched a company in Chicago, which at the time was Quaker Oats. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the job that I wanted. I interviewed at P&G for practice. There's no way I was moving to Cincinnati. And I ended up not getting the job at Quaker. Got really far. And I ended up getting the job at P&G. And that's what happened. And I had decided I wanted, I got interested that I wanted to do it. And the interview process, I didn't want the job there. So I was really not pressed. You know, they asked me questions and I felt I knew the answer they wanted me to get, but I wouldn't give that. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I thought. And that's how I ended up from uh, aspiring to be an MD, PhD in engineering. I really didn't like the hands-on work, discovering brand management, and not getting the job that I thought I wanted, <laughs> which P&G was a much better choice. So how did you get over the Cincinnati hump? It just, for me, I didn't, so that's another, what was it like to be in Cincinnati is one question. The other is what made me say yes. It was just obvious to me at the time when I decided that this would be interesting as something to do until I figured out what I wanted to do. I still didn't mm-hmm. think I wanted to do that long term. Yeah, I thought I'll take a break. I'll yeah, do this. Too. 
And so it was, yeah, right? So I thought, oh, well, I guess it's Cincinnati. This is the price I have to pay, and it won't be forever. So I didn't, you know, it wasn't like I came to love it. It was just a necessary evil. And so Cincinnati, 25 years that I spent uh, before retiring from PNG, I spent more time away from Cincinnati than there. And there was this thing called ABC, anything but Cincinnati. So I was on the ABC plan, although I was there for 12 years. And friends, as you experienced, Jim, friends made it work. Yeah. And uh, yeah. my family being in Chicago, there was a period of time that I flew to Chicago probably every weekend. They had this low fare program from Delta, this Comair program where you would right. get passes. Yep. And so I would just fly home for the weekend. So I would come to Cincinnati to work and go home for the weekend, or when I wasn't doing that, it was friends that made it, um, made it tolerable. <laughs> yeah. We've all been there. You spend millions of dollars each year driving traffic to your company's website, and then the results come in and they're just not what you hoped. On top of that, 81% of marketing leaders say website ownership is a challenge. So what do you do? Well, you switch to Webflow. Let me tell you why. Webflow's visual-first platform empowers your team to own your company's most valuable dynamic marketing asset, your website. From launching a new site to optimizing for SEO and conversions, Webflow gives you the tools you need to drive business growth fast. Unlock your website's full potential when you build, manage, and host with Webflow. Get started today at webflow.com. You took a, we could talk about other transitions too. I'm going to get you to talk about your learning in a moment, but you took a sabbatical. And I think that's so interesting and more people should do it. I know it's hard. You have to have the right situation, circumstances. But I, I think I'm curious what you did in that sabbatical, which was about seven or eight months, right? So it wasn't just four weeks. So what was your objective in doing it? Did it turn out the way you thought it would? And just walk us a little bit through how that went. I loved it. It's the best. It's the best thing I think I've ever done. Was take that sabbatical, and it it's was a big one statement. of the hardest, hardest things I ever chose to do. So it was not easy to choose the sabbatical, and it was clearly one of the most rewarding things. I mean, including like having children, just. Incredible. So I went on sabbatical with intention because I had been on the corporate roller coaster, um, flying all over the world. I was living in Geneva, I had a global job. So I wake up one morning in Japan or another in Brazil, you know, these jobs. I had two children and, every, you know, it was just always something. And then, you know, um, the merger between PNG and Cody was a lot integrating the businesses. It was a long merger, you know, 18 months, building up a team. It was a vision of a startup. So it was just intense, intense, intense. And I remember going a month without seeing my children. Now I talked to them every day. It was a full month, including weekends. And I'm so clear on my values. I'm so clear. I use these things called energy domains. I'm so clear. And I asked myself, how did I get here? How did I get here? With all this focus, I'm so intentional. How did my life become what I didn't want my life to be? How does that happen? 
And it happens over time. You know, I would go, I would give myself boundaries around travel that in a week's time that I would be home more often than I'm not. Then I cheated it and expanded it to a month's time. Then I expanded it. And then I just ended up giving it up. Like, how does that happen? And so the sabbatical for me was a part of reset. So when I left Cody, everyone said, what are you going to do? You're going to go for this. I'm not going to do anything. This is time for me to reacclimate and get grounded. Nothing. And people didn't believe it. You must have some other job. No, 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 no. And so um, I was intentional. One was at the time I knew I was moving to New York. I wanted to be mommy. And I wanted to have my kids get grounded in America because my son was born in Switzerland. My daughter, we moved there when she was three. So moving into New York where we hadn't lived, you know, I wanted mommy to be there to help do that transition. And I did that. You know, I had my sneakers. I wear, everyone, anyone who knows me, I wear heels 24-7. I had no heels. I wore sneakers. I walked around the city and I took my kids to school. Okay. And I was there when they got home. So I was mommy. Um, the other, the other thing is I ran the New York Marathon. You know, I was nervous because we're doing machines. Go, 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 go. What am I going to do? So while I knew I wanted to be with my kids, I was afraid that I wouldn't accomplish anything. So I set myself a goal to run the New York Marathon. So I trained for the marathon. So I did that during the sabbatical and I ran it in November and I started training. Um, when did I sign up in April? So I yeah. trained for the New York Marathon and used that to get to know marathon. Third, I tried on, I didn't know what I wanted to do because I always said I wanted to run a beauty company, but you just get used to what you say you want to do and you go for it. So I talked to people in lots of companies, not looking for a job, but to interview them, to just try on different industries. So Mm -hmm. I did that. And the fourth thing is I took time for myself to reflect on what my purpose in the world was. I'd never... I did, did a lot of work on values and who I wanted to be in the world, but never what I thought the reason for being, my reason for being was. So I did training and like did purpose workshops, which is interesting. I ended up with Unilever because that's mm-hmm. so focused on that at Unilever. What's your personal purpose? So those are the four things I did. The fifth thing I said I wanted to do was rest. I never really got to that because my sabbatical was meant to be a year and a half. And so it ended up being shorter when I decided to join Unilever. So tell us about this journey to find your purpose in the world. Uh, how did you do it? You said you took some workshops. Did you have a coach, a counselor? Uh, so it's, it's a common thing I hear from people. They feel like they're joining organizations with purpose. They haven't done the same work on themselves. So could you tell us how you approach that, how you decided to do it? What was the revelation? And then tell us about your process and where you came out. Yeah, some of the things you asked, I want to say all of the above. One of the, um, so I did a workshop. I worked with a coach. I got a life coach and it was less on purpose, but just life stuff. Um, uh, And then I asked people who I was for them. Like, and that really helped. Um, and as introspective as I am in terms of my um, goals and values, I'd never thought about why I was put on this earth. Like one of the books I've loved, others, 
is a Celestine prophecy. I remember reading that at like 21 and it was like, wow, you know, it was like insight on, you know, what you're here to do. And when I was a kid, I was really into astrology. So that's what I've always curious, but I've never really declared like my, my purpose. And so I heard so much from people about who I was for them that I hadn't really contemplated that just by default, you know, people would say, you know, AC, you always show me that I can do more than I think I can do. Or you do this, or just a range of things. And I hadn't thought about that because it wasn't intentional. You know, I would say, of course you can do X, Y, Z. Let's, why don't you do this or that? Or, but I hadn't thought about that as, you know, and generally it got to, you know, I hear it from my mother. I hear it from my kids. I would hear it from my friends. And then when I left Cody and every organization you leave, what I would hear from people is, hey, so you would teach us this or you would show. And I just didn't know myself in that way. And that ended up being a bit of a cornerstone of my purpose. And I would also hear a lot, you inspire, you inspire, you inspire. And I'm someone, I don't take myself that seriously. So it's hard for me to say, oh, you know, I'm inspiring. So that's not, it's just not who I am. And so I would hear, oh, you know, when I ran the marathon, I would get all this, you got me to run. And when I saw you do this, I did this. And when I saw you do this, and it was just so um, kind of humbling to see. And so I decided it wasn't about me taking myself too seriously. It was me, me um, understanding and channeling what I'm here to do, what I'm able to do. And it helped me not worry so much about, you know, any piece of ego or, but just really me embracing what opportunity I had and leaning into that. So really insightful was interviewing people and having them tell me who I was for them. What was the most uh, poignant or surprising answer you got to that question? Um, again, I think from my mother, you know, mm. just, you know, uh, you know, kind of helping and inspiring her in areas. And you don't usually think about the mother-daughter relationship in that way. Um, and then just... Again, from friends, we, we, you, I don't think I'm not used to either listening to or really hearing such, you know, positive feedback from people on the impact that you have on them. You just, it's not what you do on a day-to-day basis. You don't go through your life that way. So it's hard to signal out one, but it was all of it together that made it undeniable. You know, you can kind of discount one, uh, one person's feedback and yeah. all of it was like, okay. Wow. Wow. And just you continue to hear that. People reach out and they say, I've watched you for so many years. And because you did this, I did that. And it's like, really? You know, I just think of myself as Nuram Benoit's mommy, you know, Desbracy's wife. And, you know, I'm working like all of us. We're just out here trying to do the best that we can. I don't see myself as this person who you know, who can inspire and do these things. I'm committed. I'm resilient. I have, you know, I have passion and I'm committed to make things happen. So I see myself as that and that I, we, we can all do that. And of course I help people. I mean, of course, one of my, you know, of course, if you see opportunity, that's how, that's who I am for me, not like this significant. So all of that helped me see, wow, you know, the, it does make a difference. So I shouldn't be shy about it. And so what I say is my purpose is inspiring greatness through beauty, confidence, 
well-being, and passion. But overall, inspiring greatness. I never would be able to say that. That sounds like so noble. Who are you to inspire greatness? But that's what I heard from people that I have the ability to do. And I hadn't done that before going to, uh, I hadn't done that before the workshop. So I joined Unilever as a purpose-driven company who everyone does purpose workshops there. I mean, who knew? And when I did this, I had no idea I was joining Unilever. But when I did the actual workshop, I was um, contemplating going to Unilever and I wasn't sure that I would. You know, 25 years of working at P&G, you think of like Unilever as this big enemy. It's not like that. We're all people. We're all human. We're not our companies. It doesn't even, it's really inconsequential. But in that, I got to discover that Unilever is a company and this role that I'm in, which is leading the beauty and personal care business for Unilever, was exactly what I wanted to do. It's an opportunity to have a big platform to make a difference. You know, and that's what I've tried to do with our brands. And when I look back and say, wow, we've done a lot. So we've been able to do. And it's, it was not a global job. I'd been in global jobs for at least 15 years. It was local. So it was close to home. So I could see my kids and be there at dinner with them. You know, and, you know, the brands that are in the portfolio, they matter and they help in all those spaces. And so I looked at it. So at first it was like, why would I want to do that? It's more of the same. Oh my God, I said my purpose was this, and this is the perfect opportunity. And here are the things I wanted. Here are the things that I want. And the sabbatical did that. That would not have existed. That possibility was not there without having that that break. What a great story, AC. I'd like you to reflect. You you went to Unilever after the sabbatical, which is in total harmony with your personal purpose, and. So you transitioned into Unilever after the sabbatical with a bit of a, an awakening or you made something that may have been implicit, explicit. What, what kind of, how did it affect you as a leader and how did it affect you in that, this chapter of your life? How are you different in how you lead now than when I worked with you, you know, 12, 13, 14 years ago? I think every chapter of your life um, you grow. <laughs> um, and there's so many ways that from when we were working together that I've grown, you know, I, like I have two children now, you know, um, you know, I moved from the U.S. into Switzerland, pregnant. Benoit was in my belly when I moved there. Um, I left Switzerland and had to reenter with two children. Um, I went through, you know, Cody in between. I think it would have been difficult to go from P&G to Unilever. So I got to see the outside world. You know, P&G, you're so, at the time, we were incredibly insulated. It's promote from within, yep. you know. And then you go and to- there was an arrogance. There was an arrogance as well, which I think has, has changed. And just, it's just everyone has worked from, for the company, you don't, and just the corporate shield- even in terms of the P&L, all the levers you don't have access to in the P&L. It's just a different, was at the time, and the company has probably changed, but different environment. Then I went to Cody, totally different, people from all over. And so it demystified what competition looked like. So it, that was another growth, like, oh my God, we're all people. And then the P&L levers, 
much more access and learning on how to grow and drive a business, right? That I didn't have as much, you know, while we grow, you know, while at P&G, we're accountable for the business, you had only half of the P&L levers and not all of the P&L levers. So getting into the P&L levers. So when I came to Unilever, I had a very different openness about the world. Unilever wasn't the enemy, you know, it's just people working towards a common objective, you know, in support of whatever that company's ambition is. It was a very, very different perspective. And then second, you know, I had 25 years of being, you know, on the corporate ladder, all about driving the business. So while I continue, because my role, I'm not like, technically, I'm a COO more than a CMO, but I'm a brand-centric business leader. So I really believe in brands and marketing, but I do that to drive the business. So, you know, when I think about um, my view on that, at, you know, at Unilever, what's also different is I close that chapter of, you know, let's just grow the business. I'm really in this mindset of how do we make a difference with their business? I have a different view on it. It's not just about selling more. It's earning our profits. You know, it's about being so impactful with people that you're rewarded with business growth. So of course I do all the things that we do to grow the, grow the business and optimize the P&L and make sure the enterprise delivers return. But at the core of that, what I'm really committed to is how do we serve people with our products, with our brands, with our programs. And that, I don't, you know, 20 years ago, that's not what I, I always want to help people, always had a mission of serving, but it was still business first. For me, it is absolutely people and communities first, right? And then the business pieces in support of yeah. that because it fuels it. So, you know, there, I don't want to underplay um, my focus on the business, but I'm saying how I drive business is through delivering what matters for people. Right. And that's, that's, and I learned that. I learned that you could do that. I learned that from running CoverGirl when I saw really being of service to people, how much you were rewarded with business growth and success. And I challenged myself to make an even bigger impact on people. Yeah. You know, one theme in this podcast, I mean, I've done about 120 wow. of them. So it's quite a database of, okay. le of leaders. And one really powerful theme, of course, is this concept of purpose, which we've been talking about. But sort of in the context of building strong people, it, you know, having an impact on people, which you've just been talking about, and on communities. And, you know, not coincidentally, some of the greatest brands in the world right now that are really hot and really trending are all about their community and bringing people together towards some sort of common purpose to uplift them some way. And there are the obvious ones like Peloton who is all about their community, and, and even TikTok, whatever you think about them, they're about the creators. And they have tremendous respect and generosity for the creators. So I think this, this you know, purpose, people, and community, if that's not a mantra for every brand leader, then you need to think about and, that. And, you know, and that's what we are trying to do. You know, the, the inspiration for... My team, the beauty and personal care team, is to be the beauty company that makes the most positive impact on people, communities, and the planet. And that's what we're on a mission to do. 
and across the brands, uh, you know, we're, that's what we seek to do on Dove, you know, the work that we're doing with Dove and the Crown Act and the Crown Coalition, the work we do with the Self-Esteem Project, you know, it's all about having that impact. And um, the work we're doing on Dove Men, really trying to end harmful stereotypes that hurt men's lives or take away from, you know, the, um, their full potential. You know, the work we're doing with Shea Moisture, back to communities and women of color entrepreneurs, you know, that's what we're striving to do and do that through our community programs, but also through the products. I said, I told my daughter I was interviewing you today and she quickly said in a heartbeat, I love Shea Moisture. I love it. I love its fragrances. It's my favorite brand in her portfolio. That's great to hear. Yeah. And I have Love Beauty Planet in my shower. There's one shower I only go to here, and that's my go-to. I, I love, love the whole that. idea We've behind it. We've got new it. products coming. I just got to put some beautiful new products in aluminum right. packaging with refills that are even more, uh, more planet-friendly. Oh, wow. So AC, we do have to close this up in a few minutes, and I want to get to the lightning round because it's going to be really good with you. Could you speak a little bit more about the Crown Coalition? Because I think that is just, you, you talked about finding your voice, claiming your voice, and your personal purpose. And I think that brings a lot of things together. I think um, it is great when you can marry your personal purpose with a brand or a corporate purpose. And that's the that's what I've discovered at Unilever and through the brands that I have a chance to um, to lead. And the Dove brand, you know, its life's work has been ch championing and campaigning for real beauty and beauty inclusivity. And when Dove looked at, you know, the Black community and what the biggest issues are on beauty inclusivity, what kept coming to the top was hair. You know, hair, 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 hair. The image of hair, hair not being accepted because it was kinky, uh, unfavorable language referring to referred to as hair and not feeling good about it, needing to straighten your hair. And then... You know, we learned that it was simply not just uh, our the image of our hair. It was legislated that <laughs> in some cases, if yeah. a company or school said your hairstyle that was textured was not acceptable, they had the legal right to deny you employment or send you home from school. And in learning that, you know, just that's not okay. I think anyone who knows that says that's not okay, right? It's not, but many people don't know. And so um, to combat that on behalf of Dove, you know, went out and spoke to um, legislative officials, a group called Noble National Organization of Black Elected Officials, who many of them had textured hair and many of them didn't know and said, we could make this change. And then a senator from California, Holly Mitchell, said, you know what, I'm going to take this on and champion this. And we founded the Crown Coalition in, in support of championing what is now known as the Crown Act, creating a respectful, open world for natural hair. Senator Holly Mitchell and team coined Crown. We formed the coalition to be in support of that. It's partnership with the National Urban League, Western Center on Law and Poverty, and Color of Change. And so now the Crown Act is um, in place in seven states. Last year, it passed the Federal House of, Leg uh, House of Representatives. So, you know, we're on our way to federal legislation. We've got work to do this year. But it is all out of beauty inclusivity that, you know, Dove believes in and having the ability to lead that. And, you know, there's more to do. We talk an awful lot about brands having a purpose. We often fall down and activating it and measuring it. And this is a beautiful example of activation, a beautiful Thank you. example. 
What would you say is the key to success for today's CMO? If you said data, you wouldn't be the only one. At Deloitte, however, we believe data is only half of the equation. The other half, story. Because data is the language of business, but story is the language of humans. And we believe the most successful CMOs know how to harness the power of both data and story. To learn more about Deloitte's CMO program and how we can help today's CMOs succeed, visit cmo.deloitte.com. So AC, I want to move to the lightning round to close this out. And uh, the first question I have for you is you danced and acted in college. What was your favorite role or performance? Oh, wow. Um, uh, the Colored Museum with uh, Shonda Rhimes was my director, actually. Are you kidding? <laughs> no. That's how I know oh, Shonda. My. Shonda from the Colored Museum. We just talked about it recently. So I was a wig, and I was a talking head with a wig, and we talked, and she directed me, and it was, it was oh, great. We literally I'm just spoke I asked about that question. Like, yeah, wow. We talked about this November, December. Like, do you remember? Yes, she was Buddha, Black Underground Theater Association. She was a director for Buddha, and there was a colored museum, and there was a three wigs. Um, I she think is, that's, oh, yeah. She is so freaking talented. Just amazing. Well, uh, listen, I want to ask you about Cody and Unilever products and your beauty and wellness regimen. So which are your favorite products from those two companies that are still in your regimen? Um, so... Unilever, I would say my favorite right now is a new product I just launched, which is Melee Even Tone Corrector. Love it. It's a new brand. Uh, Melee is short for melanin skin. It's melanin skincare and it's a serum. And it, um, I love it. I love it. So that's my, that's my favorite. Before that, it was another face serum, which was, um, Shea Moisture, um, mm -hmm. uh, serum. It's the uh, coconut oil uh, serum, which was incredible. Those are my two favorites. And I have lots of Unilever products that I use, but those are my ooh-la-la ones. And so um, from Cody, I would still say CoverGirl Lash Blast Mascara <laughs> in the orange. <laughs> I thought you'd say that. You thought I would say that. My daughter, yeah. we just talked about, I think she's using something now. She's like, I like exhibitionist, but it's still that clean lash look. So you are a very highly awarded leader from so many different organizations, Women's Wear Daily, Ad Age, BET, Ebony, on and on. What's been the most meaningful one? Hmm. That is a really good question. I'm trying to think. I'm looking over at my little trophy case to see really what um, means a lot to me is when I'm rewarded for impact. Um, and so I got an internal award at Unilever for the Crown Act, and it's called the Compass Award. And I got that earlier this year. Um, and that was really meaningful. And I've gotten a lot of awards that I'm so grateful for that are um, you know, legacy uh, awards or I got one from ad color that was, I think it's called the legacy award. So I appreciate those as well. The ones I really appreciate are the ones that show the impact. So I think most recently mm -hmm. was this Unilever compass award This out of our whole global Unilever is a very global organization. And 
big in India, big in China. So a lot of the impact programs come out of markets like from Lifebuoy. And then to see the U.S. be acknowledged for the impact. And I hate to say an internal award because I value external, but it's the one that I can point to. It really is about impact. The others tend to be more about leadership or lasting mm-hmm. yeah. impact in the industry, which I appreciate. But Yeah. So what are you most passionate about right now? I'd say wellness. 2020 with COVID was like anti-wellness. And so I'm into personally how do I get back in more uh, healthier practices? You know, I always do my Japanese water therapy. I do my intermittent fasting, but those are probably the only two that stuck. So I'm trying to get back into my fitness routine, back into meditating, back into moving and walking. And then I'm really thoughtful about wellness in the community. <laughs> you know, just yeah. what can we do to have give people a, a richer wellness experience? You have an incredible personal board of directors. I read about them. I think the Wall Street Journal did a piece on that. If you add it one more, and it could be anyone, who would that be? Oh, see, I would say like Michelle Obama or Barack Obama. Yeah, both. Between the two. Can you? Yeah. I'm about midway through his big book. I'm at about 350 pages. It is so good. And it's so good on the small stuff, what life was like as a family in the early days in the White House, uh, and frankly, how he found his voice, and when he realized that he had a big impact on people, you know, and he goes through that in a really, really personal way, in a way that's very relatable. So if um, I'm reading that and I'm loving it, I'm absolutely loving it. That is actually next on my reading list. My favorite book from 2020 was actually Cast. Yeah, that's and on my shelf too. It was uh, just incredible. So my son always says, why do you recommend that to everyone? So, 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 so good. I read a lot of like four or five really good books. But I'm reading now um, Deacon King Kong. And when I'm done with that, I go to Promised Land. Yeah. So I'm, that's next on my list. Super. All right, last word to you, AC. You've been so generous. And this has been such a marvelous beautiful conversation. Anything for me, any question before we sign off? No, nothing that comes to mind. It's been lovely talking to you, Jim. So much research. I'm like, I'm blown away. Like, I didn't know Jim knew all this about me. (laughs) Well, this podcast is a gift, right? And I get to enter someone's life for an hour and I take that very seriously. And I do want to know everything I can about them. So my conversation can be helpful for people and hopefully help them make an impact in their life through the example of people like you. Thank you for the opportunity. And I look forward to uh, enjoying more of your podcast in the future. Thanks, AC. And enjoy the weekend. Okay. Ciao. Bye now. Bye-bye. That was my conversation with AC Eggleston Bracey. That was about the most personal podcast we have done in this series. Three takeaways for you to think about in your life and your business. First one, If you're not in the wellness business, you probably should think about that. Wellness is important for your employees. It's important for your customers. And nearly every business coming out of COVID is going to be dialing up 
their wellness strategy. So think about that for your brand, your business. Second takeaway, do you have an explicit personal purpose? AC talked so clearly about finding her purpose, finding her voice, claiming her voice. The most important question she asked people when she was on her journey to find her purpose, who I was for you. Think about asking that to the people that are important in your personal and professional life and be sure that you are explicit and following your personal purpose. And the third takeaway, the sabbatical. How often do we take a pause in our life to recenter, reconnect, and be sure we are spending our time, our most valuable resource, on what we want to be spending our time on? In some ways, it's a luxury to take some time when you're not working to recenter, but it doesn't have to be a year or two. It can just be a weekend, it could be a week. It could be a month. Obviously, the longer the better in terms of how deeply you want to recenter. But I did not take as long as AC did, and I still found it very powerful to help recenter my life. The perspective I got by stepping away was that actually, when I was in the corporate job at PG, I don't think I was playing to my strengths as well as I could in a more independent life where I was pursuing things that I was most passionate about. So I decided to have a portfolio approach to my life, to not work for one company, to have several things that were centered around my personal purpose that I would work on activating in my daily work. That's it for this episode of the CMO Podcast. If you found this helpful and entertaining, I would be so grateful if you could share our show with your friends. And I would be super happy if you subscribed so you can be updated as we publish new episodes. And if you really want to help, leave us a five-star rating and a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. The CMO Podcast is a Gallery Media Group original production.